Well, no one talks about sin anymore, right? We've got all kinds of alternative language. We prefer obsessive behavior or neurotic patterns or deviance or pathology or disorders or you name it. All is disease. And I think we can all agree as a result of seeing everything as disease, we've lost our moral compasses. We've lost moral responsibility. It's been diminished in our culture. As Christina Summers in a really gripping book, One Nation Under Therapy says, syndromes have replaced sin. Therapeutic culture has gripped the U.S. The priest has been replaced by the therapist. And the, the growth of clinical psychologists has been exponential, really in the last five years, but even zooming out the last 30 years. Sin is really considered no longer our problem. In fact, really the only sin is to say there's such a thing as sin. It's blasphemy of the secular spirit to speak of sin and guilt. No one talks about it anymore, even pastors. It's shameful how little the word sin happens in most pulpits across America. And so we've got our work to do, friends. If we're going to be biblical, we've got our work to do when it comes to discipleship and when it comes to evangelism, because as theologian Henri Blachet says, biblical religion is preoccupied with sin. Not meaning it's our main thing and that we major on it. No, we major on Jesus Christ. But it, it, the point is we can't read really one page of the Bible without talking about sin. Here's how one of my heroes, J.C. Ryle, put it. He said, the plain truth is that a right knowledge of our sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. And so our current cultural context makes passages like Romans 3 pretty unwelcome. Paul would not have made it on Oprah's book club. But this is a message that is desperately needed. As someone has said, hard truth is better than sweet deceit, right? So this morning we turn to the conclusion of our series on the sinfulness of sin, and it is uncomfortable. It is bleak. It is pessimistic. Here we have a detailed and de depressing description of the depth of our depravity. In Romans 3, Paul concludes where he started back in 118. If you got your Bibles open, 118 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if you've been with us, he's talked about the, the Gentiles and how darkened they are. And Jews can't feel any better because they've got the same problem. And now in chapter 3, he's turned to everybody. So if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ in this room this morning, these verses are probably going to offend you. And I'll say just, hey, bear with Bear with the Bible, and I'd also say keep coming because we're going to turn a corner here in a little bit and see the solution to this problem. And if you are a believer in here this morning, these passages no longer describe you if you've trusted in Christ. This is a depiction of humanity apart from the grace of God. This is who you were. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20 for you using one of our pew Bibles. It's page 884. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So let's just walk through this passage. First there in verse nine, he really repeats the point of chapter two. He even mentioned a few advantages that the Jewish people have in the first verses of chapter three and he'll do the same in chapter nine. But the question here is, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. They're not better off. Why? Because of sin. He's already charged, really starting in chapter 118 all the way to where we're at now. He's already charged that all are under sin. They're at no advantage because they're sin. They're sinners, just like the Gentiles. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No exceptions. Both Jews and Greeks, all people, all of us are under sin. And notice how he describes sin here. He describes it sort of like a power. We're under sin. Sin is this cruel tyrant holding down the human race, weighing us down, crushing us. And all of us are under sin. Now, of course, not everybody sins to the same degree externally, but every one of us is infected by sin. All of us are under sin, he says. We're all in the same camp, humbled at the foot of the cross. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. It starts, as it is written, there it is again, as it is written. Paul's going to do this all throughout Romans. All the writers of the New Testament are constantly doing this, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. In other words, their authority is in this book. This is the foundation for them. It ought to be the foundation for us. And he also brings it up to say, hey, I'm not teaching you anything new here. This is all over the Old Testament. In fact, for the rest of our passage, Paul's just going to quote a bunch of passages from the Old Testament, mostly the Psalms, some in Isaiah. Paul did Awana. And here he lays out 14 charges from the Old Testament. He condemns our character. He condemns our conversation. He condemns our conduct. He says, none is righteous. And just in case we thought, well, we'll move on. He says, no, not one. The repetition just drives home the point. None is righteous. No, not one. This is the bad news that ultimately makes the good news good because God requires righteousness. In fact, God requires perfect righteousness. He doesn't grave on a curve. He doesn't require us to be a little better than we are worse. He doesn't require 51% goodness. He requires perfect righteousness and none are righteous, the Bible says. This is terrible news. This is the plight of humanity. This is our problem. God requires from us that which we cannot produce ourselves. Something outside of us has to come. Look at verse 11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Universal indictments, no one understands. Outside of Christ, no one has any true understanding because the fall, sin has affected our thinking, right? We've seen that quite a bit in chapter one. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking no one understands 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. We're fools outside of Christ. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Or look down at verse 28, chapter 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Or verse 31, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. So approval in their mind. Verse 31 says, we're foolish. Sin makes us irrational. Sin stupefies. No one understands, he says. Then he says, no one seeks for God. The Holy Spirit through the psalmist and then through the apostle Paul says, there are no seekers. No one seeks for God. Now, there are plenty of people that seek the gifts of God. They might seek some things from God. They might seek spiritual things or spirituality. But here the Bible says no one seeks the one true God who's revealed himself in Scripture because we don't want to in our sin. We're running the opposite direction. We are radically depraved. Radically meaning from the root, right? Latin, radix. Or we get radish, it's a root plant. At the root, we are depraved, sinful to the core. Sin has infected the totality of our being. There's no aspect of the human person that's not affected by the fall. I often say that I preach radical depravity, and this is one of the examples where I can say that I consistently practice what I preach. It's infected our minds, our motives, our wills. Apart from the grace of God, from the cradle to the grave, our natural inclination is away from God. No one seeks God. Our root is rotten. Our nature is corrupt and guilty. Paul's going to return to this in Romans 5 and talk about the influence of Adam on all of us. We're all in Adam. We're broken people. Popular thought says that we're sinners because we sin. may sound right, but biblically it's not quite right. Biblically, we sin because we're sinners. It's our nature to do that. We commit the sins we commit because the heart we possess. Jeremiah says our heart is sick, desperately sick, is deceitful above all things. And in Romans 3.11, we see that our sin has rendered us unable to respond to God without his prior work. None understand, none seek for God because we're all dead in our sin, as Ephesians 2 says. Colossians 2 says the same thing. We're dead in our sin. What do dead people do? What do corpses do? They don't do a thing. Use the illustration before I first heard R.C. Sproul use it, but sometimes you hear the analogy of salvation is we're drowning. I mean, we're on our last breath and, and Jesus comes by and he's got this lifesaver and he throws it out. Throws it out and he throws it out so close that all we've got to do is just grab it. If we will just grab that lifesaver, he'll pull us in and he'll save us. That preaches well, but biblically, the picture is actually quite a bit more bleak than that, isn't it? Since we're dead in sin, the, the more biblical analogy is that we've already drowned. We're already at the bottom of the ocean. We're fish food. And Jesus comes along and he doesn't throw out a lifesaver that we might save ourselves. No, he dr dives in, goes to the bottom of the ocean, brings us up and breathes new life into us. Outside of grace, we are spiritually unable to respond to God. No one seeks for God. We're talking about spiritual inability. Leave your finger in Romans 3, flip over to Romans chapter 8. 
Speaking of unbelievers, those of the flesh versus those of the spirit, he says this in Romans 8, 7. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh, again, the non-Christian, is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It lacks the ability because sin has made us spiritually unresponsive. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, the natural person, again, the unbeliever as opposed to the spiritual person, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able. There's the word, unable. Unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Here's how our king put it in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me. There's that ability. No one has the ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, in case they miss it, Jesus says the exact same thing in John 6, 665. There are none who seek God. And if you're a believer, friends, this should help us understand grace. You say, well, well hold on a minute. I, I sought God. Some of you are like, I'm, I'm here seeking God. Friends, the Bible teaches that those who seek God are those who have been sought by God. No one comes to the Father unless, to the Son unless the Father draws him. I love the way an old hymn puts it, old 19th century hymn. It says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found, was found of thee. See, we seek him only as a result of him seeking us. None seek God. Dead people don't make themselves alive. And if you're pursuing the Lord in here this morning, be encouraged. It's because you've been pursued. We love the Lord because he first loved us. Philippians 2.13 says it's God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 12 says, no one can say, again, no one has the ability to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, except the Holy Spirit work in them to raise them from spiritual death. John 1.13 says, we're born again, not of blood, has nothing to do with ethnicity, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's only one seeker, and that's God. So friend, if you're here and you haven't yet committed to Christ and you're interested in following Jesus, be encouraged. He's at work in your life. The hound of heaven is after you. And I encourage you just to go ahead and submit now. Give up now. Look at verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have gone away from God. All have gone their own way. Here's how the prophet Isaiah put it in chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've all said no to God. I'm going to put myself on the throne. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. We've been doing the same ever since. You will be like God. Yes, I will. I will be the one who determines the direction of my life. Eugene Peterson says, we're all trapped on an I land. We don't choose Yahweh, we choose my way. That Frank, Sin, Natra, I did it my way. That's the theme song of hell. I did it my way. 
We've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And they're like, surely, surely, hold on, that can't be true, Paul. People do good all the time. No one is good, not one. But remember the context here. Remember the, we're in Romans 1 to 3. Paul's talking about humanity apart from grace. And really the main issue, the root issues in verse 21 of chapter 1, I already read it. Here's the problem. Though they know God, they don't honor him as God or give thanks, but they become futile and they exchange. They exchange the one true God for idols. That's the problem here is apart from grace, we suppress the truth. We refuse to submit to God. Everything we do is in rebellion to him. So no no one does good. Something's only good when it's in relation to God. And for those outside of Christ, nothing they do is in relation to God. They're not seeking him. It's all for selfish motives, selfish ends. Just consider a man carrying bags and opening the door for a lady. You think, well, that looks like it's good. Well, the bigger picture in Romans 1 to 3 is that this man's actually carrying the bags and holding the door for his mistress. Therefore, it's not good because a larger picture is one of rebellion and immorality. We see the fuller picture here. It's not good. When not done for the one true God, nothing those outside of Christ do is good. No one does good. In Scripture, something's only good if it's done in faith. In fact, flip over to Romans 14. You can see this there. No one does good. And then Romans 14, verse 23, there at the end, last section of that verse, whatever, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever, in fact, the context of Romans 14 is eating and drinking. Whatever does not proceed from faith, and clearly faith in Jesus Christ is sin. Everything a non-Christian does is sin because they lack faith in Christ, which is, again, just the opposite way of what we're saying here in Romans 3. No one does good. All they do is sin. All they do is sin. Sin, sin, no matter what. And then isn't this different than the American conception? The American conception of humanity is basically good. Yeah, humanity is basically good. You hear it all the time. It's really what, what in church history we learn is Pelagian. Pelagius was this false teacher in the fourth century and he didn't like Augustine's theology of grace and theology of sin. And so he basically combated Augustine to say, you know what, people are actually uh, good. The, he denied original sin. He said they had a, a tendency to do good, not a tendency to do evil. He was condemned as a heretic in 397 at the Council of Carthage. That's the default theology of America is Pelagianism. People are basically good. Isn't that just so contrast to what we're learning here? In fact, funny story, when I was in college, we had a, we had a rat problem. And this rat, I mean, it was huge. We saw his tail one time. He would literally eat like a third of a, of a loaf of bread. And we made it to where he couldn't get in. He would have literally he'd have to climb up on the, the microwave and get up into the, the drawer. We don't know how he did it. We put out those big glue traps. He would just take them with him. <laughs> one day my roommate, I'm not joking, no exaggeration. One day my roommate's in the couch. He's studying. I'm in my room. And he says, Blake. And he's frozen. He said, the rat is in the couch. By the way, we named the rat Pelagius. <laughs> Pelagius is in the couch. And so we turned it over, we beat the thing to death, and hey, we were college students, and he was Pelagius, we burned him. We burned the heretical rats. <laughs> Look at verse 13. No one does good, not even one. Verse 13, their throat 
is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He moves from their heart and their will now to their mouth. And of course, we know from Jesus that the mouth and the heart are connected, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. And isn't this just a nasty image? Our throat is an open grave. I mean, visualize that for a moment. We use our mouths to deceive. Snake venom is under our lips. Destructive stuff. And he said that again in chapter 1. He said that in verse 29 at the end. They're gossips. Beginning of verse 30, they're slanderers. We use our words to tear people down. James 3 is all about this. A good reminder, we ought to read this regularly. James 3, 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bride his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They're so large and driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Ephesians 4 says the opposite. Ephesians 4 says how we ought to use our mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Instead, what we do, corrupt talk constantly comes out of our mouths, never looking to build up that it may tear down those who hear. Then he moves to the feet. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Relationships are ruined, violence, ruin, misery. And just notice the pervasiveness of sin. It affects every part of us and every part of our worlds. And then he really sums it up in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He moves from the horizontal problems now to the vertical, and this is the root of it. This is the heart of our problem. The root cause of the sins described in verses 10 to 17 are that we don't fear God like we should fear God. And that's really where he started in verse 10. This is all in reference to God. No one seeks God in here. No one wants him in our eyes. We will not fear him. At root, sin is a failure to seek and fear God. Again, 121, not honoring God, not giving thanks to God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of the Lord is respect. 
It's to be in awe before him. It's to revere him with trembling joy. I love the way Paul David Tripp puts it. He says, the fear of the Lord means that I carry around with me such a deep awareness, awe, and reverence for the power, holiness, wisdom, and grace of God that I would not think of doing anything other than living for his glory. Fearing the Lord means that this worshipful awe is the single and unchallenged motivator of everything I think, desire, say, and do. What does it mean to live a Christ-centered existence? It means that the fear of the Lord more than fear of anything else sets the agenda for our actions, reactions, and responses. To fear the Lord is to fear displeasing the Lord. And for non-Christians, that's nowhere on the radar. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Give verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the law here, speaking of the law of Moses, it speaks to those who are under the law, of course, the Jews. And if the Jews can't escape the tyranny of sin, what hope does the Gentiles have? All, he has said, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And so after this list of verses and indictments, our mouths are shut. I just get the picture of a defendant in court who, when it comes his turn to defend himself and make his case, he just stands silent, speechless because of the weight of the evidence against him. He just waits for his guilty verdict. The whole world accountable to God. Again, friends, this is the problem of humanity. Look at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The works of the law are just the works that the law demands, the ones that aren't met. They're all the works commanded in the law. And he says very clearly, no one can be justified, can be declared in the right, can gain a right standing before God. That's what the word justified means. No one is justified by works. No one can attain a right standing with God based upon what they do, based upon their performance. This is a really big deal in the New Testament. Look at Romans 3 verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is so important that in Galatians chapter 2, notice, I'm going to read verse 16. Notice that he says the same thing three different times. It's important for us to get this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed faith in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Isn't that clear? It's not by works. We, don't, we get, can't gain God's love by what we do. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. No one can be saved by works. Why? Because of Romans 1 to 3. Because of who we are. We cannot be saved by works because our works do not cut it. It makes me think of those, uh, those Pinterest memes. Have y'all seen these? We've got a few to show you. So there it is. There's the goal. That's God's standard. That's what he requires. Here's our best effort. All right, let's go to the next one. Here's the standard. Here's our best effort. Nailed it. I think we've got a few more. 
Oh, yeah, here you go, Pinterest. You can do it. Nope. <laughs> What's next? There you go. <laughs> God's standard, our very best. Nailed it. It's foolish to even try. Is that all of them? There we go. To even try. We just, we just fall so short. Here's how George Whitfield put it. He said, I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand than be justified by my own performance. Look at it again, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is where Paul had been driving his point all along. Verse 20 is the climax of the argument that started in chapter 1, verse 18, and it is a firm no to any form of self-salvation. And here we have one of the purposes of the law. He says, it's not to save, it's to show us our sin. It shows us that we don't measure up. It's a standard that we look at and we see that we fall short. The Puritans used to speak of the law as a mirror. You know, you get up in the morning, first thing in the morning, and you want to go and you want to assess the damage that happened overnight. You look in the mirror. But the mirror is unable to give you the water you need to wash your face. It's unable to provide the makeup to make you look pretty. The mirror just tells you the state of things. It's what the law does. Shows us our sin. It makes known our need. See, because we tend to think that we're okay. We tend to think again, the default theology of America is Pelagians. We think we're just fine. And the reason we think we're just fine is what's our standard? It's horizontal rather than vertical. And what Paul wants us to do is make the standard this way so that we might see our need. When the standard is this way, we can always find somebody that's doing worse than us, right? Even Kim Jong-un can say, hey, I'm no Hitler. The standard isn't horizontal though. There's a method of evangelism called Way of the Master, and it's, it's fun to watch because it's, it, it's, it happens the same way every single time. And I've done this, I mean, I've done this thousands of times. And one of the ways to get to the gospel is say, do you consider yourself a good person? Everybody says, yeah, yeah I think so. You know, bad days, but yeah, I'm a good person. And so he said, well, hey, can we just see what God thinks and look at his standard and specifically the Ten Commandments? And so he'll ask, hey, um, have you ever uh, told even a white lie? It's the ninth commandment. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I've lied, yeah. Okay, okay, that's one. Let's go to another one. What about uh, stealing? That's, that's, that's a commandment as well. Uh, shall not steal. Have you ever stole anything? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I've stole stuff. Okay, another commandment is do not commit adultery. Oh, no, I haven't done that. Well, hold, hold on. Jesus said that if you, if you so much as look at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? Oh, yeah, yeah, guilty. And, and usually what they will say is, well, let me just stop there. We've only looked at three, and you've already admitted to me that you are a lying, thieving, adulterate heart. <laughs> it just, it's so quick when we turn the standard vertical to see that we fall short. We are not good. The law shows us that. And the law can't save. Commandments can't save. They can't transform. And it's not the commandment's fault. It's our fault. In fact, we'll see that in Romans chapter 8. Flip over there. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. That's the problem. We're the problem, not the law. The law was weakened by the flesh. It couldn't produce salvation because of us. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's what the law does. It shows us. It's like a mirror. It's like an x-ray. When I was about five or so, I was at some cousin's house, or I guess it was my grandma's house, and we were playing karate with the cousins, and my foot got stuck under, I guess I was hiding or something, under one of those trash compactors. You remember those? You know, loud things. Well, my foot got stuck, and some, something happened, and I fell backward. And so I'm like this, and my goes like that, right? It's not supposed to do that. It was stuck, and so I fall, and I heard, I heard the pop in my leg. Didn't know if it was the fibula, didn't know if it was the tibia, but I heard the pop, and I knew my leg was broken. But I was five. And so my mom's like, you need to man up and walk it off, son. <laughs> not really, not really. But they did not believe me at first. And so after, I don't know, felt like hours, who knows, but I was wailing on the couch. Finally, well, let's take him in and get an expensive x-ray. Sure enough, there's a break. I'm like, vindication. <laughs> but you know what? That x-ray did not fix my leg. That x-ray just showed the problem. Expensive, needful. But it doesn't solve the problem. It just shows us our need. That's what the law does. Notice what he says there in verse 20. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Shows us our problem, but powerless to fix it. And that's the point of the series we've been in, Romans 1 to 3, the sinfulness of sin. No, the law is not the solution. The gospel is the solution. The law demands, the gospel gives. And we won't fully appreciate the gospel, the good news, if we don't fully appreciate how bad the bad news is. We won't rightly cherish the glory of grace until we see the depth of our depravity. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And brothers and sisters, grace is not truly amazing until we see ourselves as wretches. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. We must see ourselves as lost before we can be saved. Richard Greenham, another Puritan, he said, never any of God's children were comforted thoroughly but they were first humbled for their sins the first step to coming to Christ is to see your need for Christ Charles Simeon said there are but two objects that I've ever desired to behold the one is my own vileness and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and I've always thought that they should be viewed together the good news is so good when we see just how bad news the bad news is. And this is good news for the moral person, the religious person who doesn't know the Lord, and for the immoral. For the immoral person, you can give up trying to clean up your act. You'll never get there, right? It'll be like these Pinterest memes. You'll nail it, which doesn't mean nailing it. You can, you can stop trying to earn your way and submit to Christ. For the, for the moral person, you need to know you can't ever be good enough. You can't perform enough good deeds. Give up your goodness. Billy Graham once said that goodness, of course we know now no one does good, but goodness sends more people to hell than badness because they don't see their need for a savior. No one is justified by works. No one gains God's love and acceptance through their own performance. 
No, all you need is to see your need. All you need is need. All you must have to enter the kingdom of Christ is not a thing. All we bring to the equation of salvation is our sin. We need silent mouths. We need empty hands so that God might fill them with what he's done for us in Christ. I encourage you to keep coming because that's where we're going. Notice the very next verse there, Romans 3. Keep in mind all that we've seen in Romans 1, 18, all the way to 3, 20. Lots of bad news. Verse 21. But now. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus.